The inside of my head is filled with a wet, sulfurous smell. And again I hear my name rise like muffled, trapped air, released from the sandy bottom of a pond. It was four in the morning on a Saturday, and raining hard when I awoke from the dream in a West Baton Rouge motel. I sat on the side of the bed in my underwear and tried to rub the dream out of my face. Then I used the bathroom and came back and sat on the side of the bed again in the dark. First light was still two hours away, but I knew I would not sleep again. I put on my raincoat and hat and drove in my pickup truck to an all-night cafe that occupied one side of a clabbered roadhouse. The rain clattered on my truck cab, and the wind was blowing strong out of the southwest, across the Atchafalaya Swamp, whipping the palm and oak trees by the highway. West Baton Rouge, which begins at the Mississippi River, has always been a seedy area of truck stops, marginal gambling joints, negro and blue-collar bars. To the east, you can see the lighted girders of the Earl K. Long Bridge, plumes of smoke rising from the oil refineries, the state capitol building silhouetted in the rain. Baton Rouge is a green town full of oak trees, parks, and lakes, and the thousands of lights on the refineries and chemical plants are regarded as a testimony to financial security rather than a sign of industrial blight. But once you drive west across the metal grid of the bridge and thump down on the old cracked four-lane, you're in a world that caters to the people of the Atchafalaya Basin. Cajuns, redbones, roustabouts, pipeliners, rednecks whose shrinking piece of American geography is identified only by a battered pickup, a tape deck playing Whalen, and a twelve-pack of jacks. The rain spun in the yellow arc lights over the cafe parking lot. It was empty inside except for a fat negro woman whom I could see through the service window in the kitchen and a pretty red-headed waitress in her early twenties, dressed in a pink uniform with her hair tied up on her freckled neck. She was obviously tired, but she was polite and smiled at me when she took my order and I felt a sense of guilt, almost shame, at my susceptibility and easy fondness for a young woman's smile. Because if you're forty-nine and unmarried or a widower, or if you've simply chosen to live alone, you're easily flattered by a young woman's seeming attention to you, and you forget that it is often simply a deference to your age. I ordered a chicken-fried steak and a cup of coffee and listened to Jimmy Clanton's recording of Just a Dream that came from the jukebox next door. Through the open doorway that gave on to the empty dance floor, I could see a half a dozen people at the bar against the far wall. I watched a man my age, with waved blonde hair, drink his whiskey down to the ice, point to the glass for the bartender to refill it, then rise from his stool and walk across the dance floor into the cafe. He wore gray slacks, a green sport shirt with blue flowers on it, shined loafers, white socks, a gold watch, and gold clip-on ballpoint pins in his shirt pocket. 
He wore his shirt outside his slacks to hide his paunch and love handles. Hey, hon, let me have a cheeseburger and bring it up to the bar, will you? He said. Then his eyes adjusted to the light and he looked at me more carefully. Great God Almighty, he said. Dave Robichaud, you son of a buck. A voice and a face out of the past. Not simply mine, but from an era. Dixie Lee Pugh, my freshman roommate at Southwestern Louisiana Institute in 1956. A Peckerwood kid from a river town north of Baton Rouge with an accent more Mississippi than Louisiana, who flunked out his first semester, then went to Memphis and cut two records at the same studio where Carl Perkins... Johnny Cash and Elvis began their careers.